Welcome to episode 47 of Stageworthy. I'm your host, Phil Rickaby. Stageworthy is a podcast about people in Canadian theatre featuring conversations with actors, directors, playwrights, stage managers, producers, and more. If you'd like to be a guest on Stageworthy or just want to drop me a line, you can find Stageworthy on Facebook and Twitter at StageworthyPod, and you can find the website at StageworthyPodcast.com. If you like the podcast, I hope you'll subscribe on iTunes or Google Music or whatever podcast app you use, and consider leaving a comment or rating. Sandy Becker is a stage manager currently with Eldritch Theatre's The Harrowing of Brimstone McCready, playing at the Red Sand Castle in Toronto starting October 27th. get to talk to stage managers very much. I don't get to talk to interviewers very much. <laughs> uh, most stage managers are, well, first off, the people don't usually say, I would, you know, when they are approaching a production, they don't usually say, I want to talk to your stage manager. And also, most stage managers are not particularly comfortable with talking. Fair enough. I'm very comfortable talking. Mm-hmm. I probably will not listen to this podcast because the sound of my own voice recorded makes me crazy. But <laughs> See, I have the, I, 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 you know, it's hard for me. You know, I, I have to listen to a lot of my own voice. And uh, I also, the sound of my own voice makes me crazy. <laughs> so I don't know. This is, this is a great way to start. If this is your first time listening to the podcast, I hope my voice is not annoying to you as it is to me. Um, have you all, like, when did stage management start to be a thing for you? Um, I fell into it, as most people that I know who are stage managers did, although I'm encountering more and more people who set out to be stage managers, which I think is awesome. Um, I wanted to be, I sang all through school, uh-huh. and I wanted to be a performer, and uh, I went to York to try and be an actor, mm-hmm. and didn't get into the acting stream. You have to re-audition yeah. after first year at York, so I didn't get into the acting stream, and um, it didn't occur to me. Production didn't even mm. enter my mind at the time. Uh, so I just have a like I have a theater history degree, mm-hmm. and then um, I there was like a community theater thing at York, uh, and I auditioned for a show, and they said, "Well, oh, apart for you, we need a stage manager." And I went, "Sure, what's that?" Mm-hmm. I had no idea what oh. it was, <laughs> had, like no concept of what a stage manager did at that point. Really, um, did it once, trial by fire. It was a terrifying kind of nightmare, and um, uh, by the end of it, I was like, "Hey, I'm good at this," mm-hmm. and. I won't ever not get hired because I'm too tall. I won't mm-hmm. ever have any, like, it's so much less stress around finding work, around that, that aspect of my life. And I still get to tell stories. I still yeah. get to be part of the whole thing. And I'm better at it. And there's more work. And well, so. And interesting because, you know, people, people will always need a stage. There's always a need for good stage managers. Yeah. And all I have to do to get work is show up and be good at my job, and yeah. I'll get hired back. Yeah. Whereas, you know, an actor could be fantastic and the next time around there's not something that fits them. Exactly. You know what I mean? Exactly. So. Also, the, the downside of being an actor is that there are actually thousands of other people who can do exactly what you do. Another good point. There are a handful <laughs> of people who can do what a good stage manager can do. Uh, true. <laughs> so you went in, into York uh, thinking you were going to do musical theater. Well, I went into York... <laughs> this is does not a good advertisement for York, but I went to York because it was the only place I got in. I did want to go into musical theater, so uh-huh. I had auditioned at Sheridan and of Windsor course, yeah. and all the places, and York doesn't have a musical mm. theater program. And in fact, while I was there, I don't know if it's changed since, but while I was there, they were very down on musicals. They mm. really didn't like musicals at all. They considered it a lesser art form. Um, so that, <laughs> to me, I don't know what that... I have no idea what it's like now. I know some people who were, who were recent graduates, so I have to ask them. But when I was at George Brown, even though we were supposed to be classically trained, it was important that we learned how to sing because one of the things that they told us, it was not that it was like a lesser thing, this is going to be part of your career. Yeah. If you want a career in the theater, yeah. you would better be able to carry a tune, you would better be able to put together a combination, you would better be able to do Shakespeare. Yeah. These were the things that yeah. they basically And they did teach the acting students at York how mm-hmm. to sing. I know they had, they had a singing mm-hmm. teacher, um, but uh, I'm not sure what went on in those mm. rooms because <laughs> mm. I, didn't, I didn't get to the point where I had a yeah. singing teacher but um, yeah I don't I'm not sure huh. but the, but my experience there was that unless it was I think they did um, they did one 
uh, like one musical and for the entire four years, something. and it was practice. Yeah, <laughs> it was practice. It was practice. The serious. Yeah. Um, see, I always. This conversation is going to ramble a lot, of course. so I don't have set questions, so it's a Great. conversation. Um, for me, when I was way back, when I was way back in the dark ages, when I was considered, this is where I start to act like I'm older than I am. So I'll just pretend. That I do that too. I know. Way back in the 80s, when I was taking up a school, which sounds like a long time to some people now, um, one of the schools that I didn't look at was York. And the reason why I didn't look at York was the whole idea of you going to audition, you're going to get into the program, and then once you've done your first year, they will decide what you're going to do, like mm-hmm. what you are able to do. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and I, my whole thing was, fuck you, um, I'm going to do what I want to do. So I didn't want to go to a school that was not going to let me at least do what I wanted to do and fail at it, and like not let me get to that point. Yeah. Um, which I thought, I felt like that was a demoralizing way to do it. Did you see any kind of merit in doing it like that? Um, the, the merit I do see, and I think that it can be, it can, like, you can have it both ways, I think, because the merit that I did see was that everybody in first year did everything. Okay. And I think that's really important. Mm-hmm. I think that actors should have some experience in production. I think production people should have mm-hmm. to take an acting class. Yeah. I think that's really, really valuable. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's like starting off broad and streamlining down, I think right. is a really great thing to do. Um, that being said, it's it did, and I know some people who, well, like I, I remember being 19 and mm-hmm. finding out that I didn't get into acting yes. and being just yes. devastated. Of like course. it's the worst thing that could ever happen to a person. Um, as it turns out, I'm so glad I didn't. Mm-hmm. But like, you know, so yeah, yes and no. Like, I think it's. I think. I also think it's sort of, it's a real world experience mm-hmm. to be one of 216 get accepted. That's, that's the audition process. There's that too. But when you've paid and you're paying for a safe space to learn, yes. that's not super helpful. That is not super helpful. And, yeah. and, you know, in a certain way you did already, like, so I can't, I, the only school that I can really compare it to is the school I went to, which was George Brown, which took in 30. Yeah. So hundreds auditioned. 30 got in, and even they considered that too many, because ideally by the end of the third year, they wanted to be down to between 15 and 12 people. And how did they do that? Did they fail people? Did they ask them to leave? They don't fail people, they ask people to leave. So that that in your first, and it usually happens either right before Christmas and right before the summer. Uh So if it happens right before Christmas, shitty way to spend your Christmas holiday. But it tended to be, so you had some time and it's all about you know, the first semester is exploring and this sort of thing, and then they, they try to w- figure out, so who is taking to the program and who's not, and who's resisting and this sort of thing. And those might be the people that they ask to leave after a semester. They usually give, like, that first one is, that first time is kind of a blindside if they ask you to leave because you haven't had any previous meetings that gave you any warning. Mm, yeah. After that, you know, maybe you were on the edge from that first one, and then, you know. But generally, yes, they go through that painful process of asking people to leave. Mm-hmm. But they learned early on after a painful. This is a story that they told us that they used to joke that, you know, we're going to give everybody A's because what is an A? What's the difference between an A actor and an A minus actor mm-hmm. and a B actor? So everybody gets A's. Mm-hmm. And then they asked somebody to leave. And that person said, I'm not leaving, I've got A's. And they said, Well, you're going to have to leave. So they sued and said, I, My marks say that I can stay. And so then they gave everybody. A C. <laughs> so then everybody got a, a C in, in their classes, and it never. So the description became what was important, not the yeah, not the thing. The only time I got an A was uh, in my f- third year performance of A Winter's Tale when the late Douglas Campbell, who was directing us, uh, was asked, "So what should they, what should the grades be?" He said, "Well, they did it." Didn't they? They get A's. It's the only A I've ever got. <laughs> but in terms of like going from thinking you were going to go in to do uh, musical theater and, mm-hmm. and to be told 
no, you're not getting into that stream. Yeah. Did they suggest production, or did you choose production? No, um, I didn't. Uh, that's the thing is, I, I went to the default at York is theater studies. Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay. Just okay. sort of that's more academic side. Mm -hmm. It's uh, it's sort of and it, when certainly at the time mm -hmm. when I was 19 and didn't know any better, it felt like well, you can't be an actor, so you're going to be a critic. Mm -hmm. That's ah, really okay, what okay. Okay. that's really what it feels like oh. when you get that. <laughs> Somebody, somebody they're going to teach you how to be like, a critic. Just, that knife just twisted. <laughs> yeah. like, that's the whole, like, you know, the, that perpetuates that whole critics are failed actors. Yeah, thing, exactly. Exactly. So I pride myself. I don't know if I'm the only one, but I know I'm one of the very few graduates mm -hmm. of York with a theater studies degree who did not take a single criticism class. Mm. <laughs> I took all the history yeah. classes. I took all the requirements. I didn't take any criticism classes because mm. I said, I'm not going to be a critic. If I'm not going to yeah. be an actor, that's fine, but I'll be something else. Yeah. Like, um, Did you have an eye towards what you, or were you just like trying to take in as much as you could to try to figure? Uh, out well, well, that's the thing is that once you have once you have the freedom of the theater studies mm -hmm. umbrella, um, I could take whatever I wanted. I took mm. German classes. I took I took Russian history classes. I took all <laughs> kinds of stuff that had nothing to do with theater, yeah. and it was probably that's why my education was so rich, and mm -hmm. I really enjoyed my experience at York because. I was able to keep it that broad, yeah. and it was this other like little. It's, they're called Vanier College Productions. It's this, it's this little like community theater linked to one of the colleges okay. that has nothing to do with the theater department. Right. And it was through them that I found stage management that I figured out that mm -hmm. production was fun and interesting and something I was interested in doing. And do you, did, I don't know. Did you re mention what that first show that you stage managed was? The very first show I stage managed was Into the Woods. Oh, um, sure. Let's start with something easy then. <laughs> I also played the giant because the giant is just a voice, yes. so I could do that. And so that, which is my absolute favorite credit of all time, still it's said in the program with no punctuation. Mm -hmm. Sandy Becker, giant stage manager, <laughs> <That's> <laughs> my favorite thing that I've ever had. I kept the program. I love yeah, it so did. much. And yeah, so that was that was the first that was my first experience in stage management. So oh, no. maybe I ASM the Fantastics before that. Maybe I can't remember what order it came in. But still, I mean, the first one <laughs> stage like. You know, give, like if it was going to be me, give me a nice two-hand to manage first just to get my feet wet. But you know, nope. it's a very complicated show. Well, because I didn't know what I was getting into. If you don't know what you've got to do. Um, and that must have been terrifying when you realized exactly what it was that that man. Mostly it was the schedule that made me, like, it made me have brain hemorrhages. Mm. I didn't, because it was also extracurricular so it was scheduling around everyone's oh, classes I'm not available for this day I'm not available for this day I don't think we ever had the whole cast in the same room before the dress rehearsal ever mm. <laughs> so it was yeah that was I remember I do remember sitting in my residence room crying mm. because I couldn't figure out how to make this work and, yeah. Um, yeah so once the like like the calling of cues and the running of the show I don't remember being particularly scary mm. I've never really been intimidated by a scary call um, it's it's all the administrative stuff beforehand that's mm. what I find stressful. Because to me, if for now there there is some supremely technical shows. I don't know what that production looked like. It was you know sliding tracks. Yeah. like it wasn't it wasn't, so it wasn't like, fancy. No, but, I mean, <laughs> once you get into some of the larger shows mm -hmm. and you think about how to make those work and all of the moving pieces, like musicals are complicated. Yep, <laughs> musicals are complicated because they have. They have sound, they have music, they have lights, they have so many people. Yes, or few people playing six million yes, different people, which that. is a, yes. a that's another huge challenge in and of itself. Yep. Um, <laughs> and so, in some of those those things, that that's got that's like a terrifying thing. But how what, how big was the cast that you were trying to schedule at that point? Oh God, um, Into the Woods isn't huge comparatively, is it? It's no, it's, I want to say. Fifteen, maybe something I think that's like that. On the large side, from Into the Woods, maybe. But maybe I don't. Yeah, I was, it's a long time ago. I don't really remember. Yeah, no, it's not. You know, like I, my gut was like twelve. Maybe. But yeah. Still, could be, I mean, that's right? when everybody's in school and you have to try to work yeah. that out. That's still a lot. Yeah, and I it had to be. It had to be under a certain number because I remember one of my apprenticeships doing Les Mis and the cast was 20 and thinking that was enormous <laughs> so, <laughs> so must have, mustn't have been too huge <laughs> but you came out of that unscathed and decided it was a thing you wanted to do 
I guess so. And I don't really remember where the decision happened. Because I still, when I graduated, I still sent out headshots. Mm-hmm. Like, I still was thinking, oh, I'll, I'll give this a go. But I sent, I was I was a, a bit silly about it and a bit mm-hmm. naive, I think. I sent out a bunch of headshots and also a production resume to mm-hmm. the same theater, going, I could do this or I could do this. Well, you know, <laughs> and so here's, here's, the thing is that you might have actually fallen into that because of that. Because I know people who are fine actors, but they also happen to be good stage and they won't tell anybody that. Mm-hmm. Because as soon as a theater finds out that you're a good stage manager, they don't care if you can act. They want yeah. the stage manager. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So if you were to go to them and say, I can do production, I can do acting, they don't care about your yeah. acting. They're like, I need good production people. <laughs> exactly. Um, so what did your stage management career look like after school? Um, well, uh, the first my first summer after school, I got hired at Port Stanley, and um, they hired me. <laughs> they hired me to be... Um, ASM slash props and wardrobe coordinator, so I was supposed to be just in charge of maintenance and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Um, they were bringing in a bunch of shows from another theater, uh-huh. and the theater lost all their props. So when I arrived, they told me you have to build this show. Oh! <laughs> so I built, I built um, uh, Forever Plaid, mm-hmm. and thank God the director went. Well, I want it to look like these guys made it themselves, so I want all the props to look really crappy and homemade. I was like, awesome! I can totally. <laughs> <laughs> I made a lot of really bad, ugly props. Mm-hmm. And then I did some shopping for the rest of the season, but it was mostly, and I ASM'd all the shows mm-hmm. just sort of as an extra. It was, but it really felt like ASMing was the was the side game. Right. Like, this was, props is the big thing, and then, yeah. you know, you ASM and do some laundry here and there. But, like, <laughs> um, yeah, so I did I did that, and I didn't, I didn't start, because that was before Port Stanley was an equity company. Mm-hmm. And I didn't start apprenticing for a really long time. Like, a really long time. Um, because I didn't have any training, I felt like... Like, I was like, somebody, somebody... And I think it was... The advice was directed to the actors in school, mm-hmm. but somebody in school said, don't take your equity card too soon. Because then you yeah. won't get work, blah, blah, blah. And I don't feel that that applies to stage managers well, fine, quite no, as I think, much. I think that doesn't apply to stage managers But I all. took it to heart of course big you did, time. Because so all you knew. <laughs> you know what? The person saying it probably only knew from the theater, from the actor yeah. point. From the actor point. So, yeah, so I did a lot of unpaid, mm-hmm. fringy stuff that was, and, you know, did... I, I don't know. I don't know how many years it was before mm-hmm. I got my first equity credit. And it was actually... And, I, and then I... Started collecting credits here and there, but as an apprentice, you can sort of get credits for as long as you want without yes. taking your card. And yeah. so I was dabbling in equity. I was <laughs> dabbling in getting apprenticeship credits. And then uh, I was the conference assistant at the SM Arts Conference mm-hmm. um, when Winston Morgan was still running it. I think it might have been his last year. And he, like, I, I just did his photocopying and set up the room. And as a result, I got to attend all the, all the conferences, all the conference for free, right. which was great. Um, and I learned tons. And then at the end of it, Winston took me out for a drink to thank me for my work and um, yelled at me. <laughs> and said, you're doing this wrong. Like, you're good at, you, are, do you want to do this? Are yeah. you good at this? Then why don't you have your card yet? What are yeah. you doing? You're dicking around. You're wasting your time. You're wasting other people's time. Mm. Get on this. And yeah. I went home and I cried and I was so upset because Winston Morgan had yelled at me. And then the next morning I woke up and I was like, no, he was right. He was mm. absolutely right. So then I started doing it in earnest. Yeah. And, um, so I got my card. When did I get my equity card? 2006, mm. 2007, something like that. And, mm. uh, and two years later, I managed to quit my day job at the bookstore. Hey. Yeah, that's cool. <laughs> Whenever you can go and, and quit your day job to do the thing, mm-hmm. the capital T thing, <laughs> that's a great moment. Yeah. Oh, it was, that was the yeah. best moment ever. I, sent, I remember sending my mom an email saying, like, it's in my printer. I printed out my letter of resignation. I'm dropping it off tomorrow. I'm out of, I'm out of the bookstore specifically because of How was, did your mother react to that? Oh, she was so excited for me. Was she? Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, you, had, you had the kind of parent that was like, a life in theater is not the end of the world for my child? Or? They're, my parents both were very, very supportive the whole time. Um, yeah. I, my mom never really figured out what she wanted to do mm. when she grew up, so I think that she sort of was just excited that I knew mm-hmm. that I had a plan and that yeah. I was, you know, doing something that I enjoyed, and she was I, really, really happy for mm. me in that respect. Um, and my dad still is just... He um, he was an urban planner by trade, and so that's a fairly artistic mm-hmm. pro- profession already. Um, and he also is a photographer and you know, he used mm. to do these gorgeous pencil drawings and stuff like that. So he has a very artistic bent. Yeah. Um, so I think he understands the drive to do it. And yeah. so he's supportive in, they both have been 
financially yeah. supportive. Just like yeah. <laughs> really, like I don't. I think I would have quit long ago mm. if my parents hadn't been supportive. Of I think it's interesting to think about because I know for several generations, our parents, the you know the concept <laughs> of parent, when they would grow up and they would hit twenty, they would have to decide on a career right then and get mm-hmm. into that. And they would expect that that's the, the career you would stay in for the rest mm-hmm. of your life. And you would do that, and your reward for being in something that you may eventually hate was that at the age of sixty, you could retire and yeah. then start doing the things that you like. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that as time has progressed, that's become a less attractive thing. It's now a little more acceptable to be able to switch jobs, switch careers, and, mm-hmm. and, and make changes as you need to. It's yeah. not the end of the world like it once was. And so now it's it's good to see to he- I think I hear more stories about people whose parents were like, if this is the thing you love, yeah. then do it. Yeah, and I hear that more than I hear. Yeah, my parents disowned me when I said I wanted to be an actor. <laughs> yeah, I feel like that's sort of a first generation Canadian thing. Mm-hmm. Like I think that you know if your parents are immigrants, that's probably a little scarier. I think I think <laughs> also if, depending on how old your parents are when you went into the business. Yeah, I mean, there are people who may have gone into the business around the time that I graduated or who went to theater school and the parents were like, if you do this, you do this on your own yeah. sort of thing rather than with our support. Yeah. Um, so after that... And to yeah, be fair, I, yeah. think, I think it also helps that my sister, my older sister is a doctor. So well, well, sort of that's, like, that's, well she'll that, be okay well, because after we're gone, her sister will take care of her. <laughs> a little bit. No, you had a doctor in the family Exactly. You were okay. They have one successful daughter. That's yeah. <laughs> The, the important thing is that, that, that you both enjoy what you do. Totally. <laughs> um, when did you link up with Eldridge Theatre? Uh, when did I link up with Eldridge Theatre? Two years ago. Uh-huh. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, and I, I already knew Eric, uh, but I have not even seen any of his shows, mm-hmm. I don't think. Um, I've, been, I've been on one tour with him. Uh, he was hired as an actor on this kid's puppet show mm-hmm. about a Christmas turkey. <laughs> we toured it all over southern Ontario, and um, and I knew I enjoyed working with him, and I really liked him as a person. And uh, and then I am very good friends with Eric's longtime designer Melanie McNeil, um, and she I think pushed for me to to come in and join the Eldridge family. I think she uh, I think she wanted to have me around. I, I I'm not sure what happened to. I'm not sure what happened with the stage manager prior to me. I, like, I don't think there was a falling out. I think mm. everybody's happy and everybody likes each other. I think maybe she stopped stage managing or she Impossible. moved on to something bigger. Or maybe she went bigger. on to something else. I don't know. <laughs> but, um, yeah, anyway, so, uh, but he was looking for a stage manager and, mm. and Melanie said, I have this friend. And he went, I know that friend. <laughs> so, <laughs> In terms of what Elder Theater does, now, Adriana Prosser is somebody that's a friend of mine. She's been on the podcast before and she describes... She's the, the marketing monster for mm-hmm. Eldridge Theater. She described to me what Eldridge Theater did as magic horror puppet theater. Sounds like an apt description to me. So, since I heard that phrase, I've been trying to figure out what is <laughs> magic horror puppet theater. Now, I'm sure that your answer is going to be you'll have to see it to figure it out. <laughs> kind of, but... but could with. Aside from that, can you give me some kind of idea of what Magic Horror Puppet Theater is? Magic Horror Puppet Theater is... I was actually talking to somebody who was a prospective volunteer for us this year and trying to sort of explain the same concept because it's... It's comedy, but it's comedy out of trying to be very, very frightening. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) It's, um, It's... creepy and hilarious and um it's it's also there's 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 puppets and they're mm. telling horror stories and doing magic tricks okay. Okay. <laughs> so that's really like so the, puppet, the, the nuts the, and bolts the, of the it the puppets are doing magic tricks uh i don't think no eric does okay. the magic tricks okay. with his I hands just... but i but i wait nope i did frankenstein's boy a puppet did do a magic trick so okay. that is something that happens on occasion, I'm not sure if it'll happen in this show. Or not. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't think the puppets in this show are quite as dexterous as the puppets uh, in the other shows. So. What is unique about stage managing a uh, an Elbridge Theater show that is different from another show? Um, it's 
I think I, well, I certainly laugh more in rehearsal. I certainly <laughs> enjoy rehearsals more. Um, what is unique about it? Uh, everything. It's a completely <laughs> different beast. Well, it's part of it is not so much uh, Eldridge, and part of it is the space we work in. We work at the Red Sand Castle mm-hmm. Theater, so it's very, very... Uh, his shows require a very specific technical elements mm-hmm. in a space that is not equipped to provide them. Okay. <laughs> so there's that. So I've, I've worked at the Red Sand Castle. I love the Red Sand Oh, Castle. me too. Space. Me too. The, 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 as a necessity, its technical specifications are quite sparse. Mm-hmm. So when a show requires things that the theater doesn't have, what do you do? Um, well, you get creative, and luckily I, I'm not uh, on the design team, so I don't have to actually come up with the solutions usually. But uh, um, I remember on Frankenstein's Boy, which was the show we did two years ago, we had a couple of things that we really wanted, that I don't even remember who really wanted it to happen, whether it was Eric or Marjorie Chan, our director. But uh, um, we wanted an orphanage to light on fire. <laughs> and okay. Okay. I was like, that could either be something really that could either require projection, or we could cut out a little uh, house of foam core board and, mm-hmm. and put cloth flames behind it attached to a fan, so we yeah. turn the fan on and they showed up. And um, so that's of course what we mm-hmm. did. And um, that show needed a lot of. Uh, there was a. There was a. Oh, can't give away magic tricks. There was a box mm-hmm. that required a very specific lighting effect. Okay. Um, which was just, that was just a matter of, of finagling focus for a long time and figuring is, out what was... Is doing a, a, a theater show that has magic elements in it um, difficult to stage manage? Because magic requires a certain amount of misdirection, which means that everything involved on the stage has to help with that misdirection. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it's just, it's just putting the thought into it. And that's the thing is, because Eric is a magician, mm-hmm. he knows what is required to make the trick work. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's even like, he'll educate his directors on that. He'll say, you know, well, I, I understand that this, you want the story to work this way, but for the trick to work, <laughs> this, these are the specific things that have okay. to happen. Um, uh, and, uh, and he's, obviously, I made on all the magic tricks on that. <laughs> I, know, I know what happens to make them happen. Um, My question to you is not, um, how do the tricks work? Yeah. Because, number one, I know that you're not going to tell me. And number two, um, there was this Radio Lab podcast a couple of years ago where they talked about this, this mentalist trick and Penn and Teller came on or Penn came on and was like, I can tell you how the trick works, but you'll be really disappointed because yeah. whatever you're thinking of in your brain is far more complicated than, than, than what actually happens. And so they convinced him to tell him that he cut that out of the podcast, uh-huh. but made it available if you were to go through several steps to get it because they kept saying along the way, don't do it because do yeah. you'd be disappointed. When you are watching this, now that you know how these tricks work, mm-hmm. are you able to see it from the audience point of view, or are you always like, I know how this works? It's Not weird. really anymore. No. Yeah, I, I always, be, because uh, because part of my job as a stage manager is to, is to make sure that the show is going well, mm-hmm. so if I see a tell, if I see something that is, right. that, like, oh, there was, you flashed something there that, yes. you know, the audience might have caught, and so I have to watch for that stuff. So I can't be. I so you can't had no go time to put yourself oh, back into the back into the audience and sort of like enjoy no, that moment. Sadly, no, because mm-hmm. I'm always looking for the thing that would give it away to make sure that the audience doesn't see the thing that would. If give you it away. see another magic show, mm-hmm. do you see those things? Um, like, I haven't has seen this show, magic has show, this show ruined you for other magic. I don't think so. Okay. I don't think so because there's still a lot of stuff that I and and even some of. Eric's like mm-hmm. sleight of hand card trick stuff. Mm-hmm. I don't necessarily know cool. how he does a lot of the card tricks anyway. I don't, and hopefully, and I try not to learn because mm-hmm. I really like to not know. Yeah. If there's something I have to be watching for, then obviously I have to learn. But um, uh, yeah, no, I don't think. I think it's repetition, right? Mm-hmm. Like I, yeah. I used to usher as well. I ushered at the Hummingbird Center, yeah. and we had David Copperfield in. Okay. And the first time I saw the show, I was like, "That was really cool." And the third time I saw the show, I knew how he did everything. Right, right, right. Because yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'd seen well, it three times and I figured it out. Well, for a magician, I, I actually it was a guy at Hamilton Fringe this year who did card tricks, and it was really important for him. He always said that you can never do a trick more like three times for somebody. Yeah, exactly. And so if there's people in the, like, because he would do tricks when we were like sitting around and so he would always like never do the same trick for the people who were in the group mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Because it was important for him to, to retain it. So, yeah. Um, I guess it's true. If you see, if you do see it three more three times, you will exactly know how it works. Yeah. 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 So yeah. it's. Yeah, and then it sort of loses its joy. I mean, David Copperfield, it's different. Well, yeah, but, <laughs> He's really more about smoke and mirrors than anything well, else. No. I mean, <laughs> once you get to a certain a certain size of mm-hmm. a magic trick, I think trick, I think it is always. Just yeah, I really prefer small magic. I like table magic way better mm-hmm. than the big stuff. Like, I think I think sleight of hand is so when sleight of hand is done well, it's amazing because I if you can't see it, if yeah. somebody's doing something right in front of your face and you can't see it. It's yeah. awesome and super frustrating. I think, well, that's the thing, is, is having watched Everton, who was up from, for, from Brazil uh, this summer, is watching him sit at a table with people and blow their fucking minds every time as he would just do these simple things and nobody could figure out how he's doing it, but the way that he does it, yeah. uh, you, know, and, and, you know, showing you the card, all this stuff, and, and, and you blow people's minds with small magic, and yeah. really I think you don't with the big stuff. Yeah, totally. The big stuff is all flash. Yeah, but people are so and used to special s- effects. Yeah. Like, that's not, it's yeah. not, you know, the first time somebody made a big thing mm-hmm. disappear, it was probably really exciting. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. now, like, you know, with CGI and movies and green screens and all that, like, people are people assume that there's, yeah. you know, you know what I th- deception. There, I think, I've, and, you know, now we're going to start diverging a little bit, like, crazy. <laughs> but... The series, the, the now you see me, and now you see me too, are yeah. these movies where I wish they'd just done stuff that could be done with like magic. Yeah. Instead of doing CGI shit in there to be stuff that you could never do with magic. So it's not like bringing a consultant to figure out how the trick would work. Things. Yeah. We're just going to throw in some CG. Yeah. In which case, it's it not only is a terrible cheat, but also sort of like ruins what could have been craft. For the for the trick, right? To make it like something that a, a magician could have actually done. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Which is sort of like again, when you can do it in a movie, it becomes this thing that 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 um, is impossible because now it's CG, mm-hmm. and now when it's on the stage, what are people thinking now when they see a magic trick on the stage? Yeah. Do they think it's CG or do they? <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't know. know. People are thinking. I don't know. Yeah. Um. They won't be thinking that in the Red Sand Castle. I'm sure that they won't will not. be anything. Well, the Red Sand <laughs> like Castle, like I said, we don't have the tech to do that. The so. Red Sand Castle <laughs> is also small enough that it has you can be intimate in a way that you can't mm-hmm. with a lot of spaces in this city. Yeah, and even I find that even at the storefront theater is feels bigger than the Red Sand Castle, which is a great space for really uh, an intimate. Like yeah, show that really makes you feel like you're part of it. For sure. Um, yeah. So, the Eldritch Theater shows have they always been uh, produced at the Red Sand Castle? As I, that's a good question. Uh, since I have been with Eldritch, yes, mm-hmm. but I don't know what happened before that. So, do you know what? what is there something you, as a stage manager, can see that the Red Sand Castle gives to these shows that another space would not? There's a bunch of things. Um, again, the intimacy is great. It's really important for for I feel like for the puppets and mm-hmm. for the magic. Um, and uh, I think it Rosemary's really lovely in that she lets us she'll let us like transform the entire space. Mm-hmm. So we can take over when we did Frankenstein's Boy a couple of years ago. We like Melanie made the whole like the whole room was the actors were in mm-hmm. in the show as opposed to just watching the show, yeah. right? Because because you don't have a choice because it's so small. Yeah. So you feel like you're in the show anyway. So yeah. you may as well. So the audience risers were designed, and I was wearing a costume because mm. I'm so visible, and right. so it just becomes becomes really much more immersive mm-hmm. and I think that that's really helpful for a show like for for shows like Eric's mm-hmm. um, yeah there's that um, and there's there's an element of run downness that makes things a little bit creepy mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah. it's it's easy to make things creepy I wouldn't say that the, the space itself is creepy it's not but <laughs> it's easy to make things feel creepy when you know there's there's water stains on the ceiling a lot of theaters are creepy you turn on all the stage lights, turn on all the lights. Yeah. Most theaters are creepy. In the yeah. Room. Yeah. I mean, Red Sanctus also has that. I mean, the neighborhood is so in transition mm-hmm. that Le- Leslieville is like, there's like some high end restaurants and there's like a fish and chips yeah. stop and there's like a rundown garage across the street. It's such yeah. an eclectic area 
that that has got to happen. Jim's Western is closing. I know. We want. Closed, I think. I think it closed on August long weekend. That's so sad. I'm I know. Sorry. No, I know. <laughs> and, it, I, and that was like the perfect spot to go before a Sunday matinee, yeah. right? And now there's no sit-down spot where you can do that. It's upsetting. It is upsetting. Because yeah. it was a great, a great little spot. It's always rashers. Yeah. It's not the same. Way more expensive. Well, yeah. I, well, if I'm gonna if I'm gonna just go get lunch, I'm gonna go to the pumps and get a sandwich because the sandwich is over there. Yeah. Um, in terms of, I mean, just just to get back to um, just to you, we've talked a little bit of when you found stage management. Mm-hmm. Um, you were somebody who obviously had been exposed to theater at some point in their young life and decided that was the thing they wanted to do, mm-hmm. whatever form that was going to take. Mm-hmm. When was it that theater became a thing that you knew you were going to do? I honestly think, and it's such a cliche and it's so silly, but my parents took me to see the Phantom of the Opera when I was 11. <laughs> and I, and I, really, I really fell in love with singing bef- before mm-hmm. I knew, sort of. But I was like, oh, that thing that that girl is doing, yeah. I could do that. Mm. I want to do that. Can I do that? Yeah. And so that sort of, and like the next year, I was enrolled in singing mm. lessons and stuff like that. So my parents really nurtured it. And I was a pretty shy. I was a very shy, nerdy kid. And so mm-hmm. I think they were looking for ways to get yeah. me out of my shell too. Um, but uh, yeah, it was that early on, I think. And I didn't see a lot of theater. Mm. Um, I grew up in Ottawa, and there's not a lot of theater no. in Ottawa, so saw whatever came through the NAC if we could afford it yeah and that was pretty much it but I remember in high school like we went on trips to Stratford mm-hmm. and all that stuff so there was all it was just uh, yeah but I just anytime I saw theater I was excited to mm-hmm. see it I wanted to see it I you know if you had given little Sandy an option between a movie and a play I would have always chosen the play yeah. so it's just something that it, it's, it's interesting that you that you said this is such a cliche but I went to the Phantom of the Opera what's interesting is that I think everybody thinks that their way of coming to the theater is a cliche <laughs> every single person that I've talked to and I've done um, in the 40s of interviews uh, so far um, everybody's story is so unique of how they found theater that there are no cliches which is <laughs> I suppose interesting. so yeah um in terms of in terms of uh, like do you, do you know what it was like you just suddenly identified with that that, that main character yeah and I mean even before that when I was a kid when before I really knew theater mm-hmm. I always acted out my books okay I would like when I was like six or whatever I would be up in my room right. I love to read mm-hmm. and I love to act out mm-hmm. the stories and yeah. that was always you know my sister and I memorized um, Alice in Wonderland, the Disney version of Alice in Wonderland, and we used to, she would play Alice and I would play everyone else, and we, <laughs> we would like perform it for nobody, just for ourselves. Um, yeah, but I was always a very like I liked games where I got to role play, mm-hmm. so that was. But there's there's a certain because there are people who who like when they are younger they gravitate toward theater and then it's a certain point. Um, they either decide that it's not for them or somebody convinces them that it's not for them. But then there's this very small group of people who decide and figure out that it's a thing they can do to make a living. Uh-huh. Or it's a thing they want to do with their life. Mm-hmm. Do you remember at what point you figured out or realized that that was a thing that you were going to make your life's work? No, I don't remember. I remember uh, a friend in high school doing the very classic, yeah, but what? how are you going to make a living mm-hmm. question. I remember as early as 15 or 16 being very defensive about that question um, so obviously I knew before and that and so you should be because, yeah. <laughs> because it's those questions that convince people not to yeah. not pursue a life in the arts for sure it's yeah and it's, it's uh, yeah and I still of course every, we all still get that mm-hmm. question yeah but what's your real job um, <laughs> uh, but uh yeah, so I don't remember. I don't remember mm. making a decision. I don't remember. I just and I maybe it comes down to my parents being really supportive, but mm. they. I don't remember not thinking it was an option. So there was never a moment where you, where you thought to yourself that there was another option. No, I've never thought of anything mm. else. I don't remember ever wanting to be anything else mm. when I grew up. Except when I was very, very small, probably I went through like a doctor, fireman. Well, we all, phase, we, all, but we like, all go through. We all go yeah. through. The, I'm going to be a doctor, fireman, policeman. Yeah, ballerina, whatever. whatever. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
I know exactly what you mean because I, I think that there was never for me, and I think for a lot of people that I speak to, there have been a couple of people that I've spoken to, they were going to go academic and then all of a sudden they went theater. Yeah. Um, but very few people that I've spoken to have ever been anything other than what their career in theater is. Yeah. Like once that thing takes hold, it's hard. Yeah. If you end up in something else, it's because you fell into it. It was never something you meant to do. Mm-hmm. Interestingly enough, I'm actually now starting to think about what my second career is going to be. Mm. <laughs> and that's sort of, that's something that, you know, I started thinking about around, I think probably it coincided with the turning 30 mm. meltdown. Um, and, and so I'm sort of, I'm giving that some thought about, like, if I were to go back to school, what would I study? And it's hard to come up with something. Could, could I, uh, could I, do you mind if, if we just, if I ask about, about um, why that's coming up for you? Is there something that's making you, you can't keep doing this? I feel like I wouldn't want to do this job and raise a family. I know lots ah, of okay. people do. Mm-hmm. I know there's lots and lots of people who do, and they do it successfully, mm-hmm. and that's wonderful for them. I really feel like I would have a very hard time with okay. never being home to tuck the kids into bed. Mm-hmm. Like, just, I, it would be very, very challenging. Okay. Not that I have any immediate prospects of having a family, but, um, <laughs> like, it's it's something mm-hmm. that I think... And, and I've also... I get tired, and I have been saying for the past maybe five, six years that I have five more years of this job in me. Mm. And I say it every year. (laughs) (laughs) So I may still have 20 years of this job in me, but one day it's going to be true. Do you still love it? I do. Uh, I love it some years and some shows more than others. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm, when I don't love it, now I really don't love it. Like there were times when I when I used to I used to get frustrated and I used to go, Oh God, I hate my job, I hate my job, I hate yeah. my job. But I didn't mean it. I love my yeah. job. But sometimes now when I say I hate my job, I mean it. <laughs> and it, it really depends on the contract. It really depends mm-hmm. on the show and the people I'm working with and all of that stuff. Yeah. But uh, there's a lot of times where every once in a while I go like I'm getting paid nothing to put up with your garbage. Like <laughs> I, so, you know, I think as somebody who works a day job, I think that that's and I've worked a day job for several years, mm-hmm. my, many years of my life. I actually think that's part of the job, the work cycle. Mm, maybe. That at a certain point, you find yourself wondering if it's a thing that you want to do. And uh, you go through sometimes long periods of time, sometimes short periods of time, of legitimately hating what you do. Yeah. And trying to find a way to keep doing it and figuring out if, if, it's, if you should leave or not. Yeah. I do think that's part of the work cycle. Mm-hmm. I, but I do think that... that um, you don't know, like sometimes when you think you hate your job, it's not the job that you hate, it's some aspect of Yeah, it. and that's the thing is that like in the last year, I've come back around to loving my job mm-hmm. again. Like I was getting, uh, like last year, I was mm-hmm. getting really, really serious and like having conversations mm-hmm. with my dad about how would I finance going back yeah. to school and all of that stuff, having like really, getting really, really seriously thinking mm-hmm. about it. And then I did like a like a string of three or four very meaningful, very, very enjoyable contracts and went oh no I do love this Mm -hmm. (laughs) I do like doing this so it's sort of yeah it was yeah Yeah. and one of the interesting things that's been happening lately is I've been talking to people of varying generations in the theater whether they are my age in their 40s or whether they're just coming out of theater school or whether they've been in in for like 10 years or something like that Mm -hmm. um and there's a, a, a big difference in terms of the way that people look at the work. Um, when I was in theater school, uh, we were taught that your career is going to be audition, get the job, finish the job, audition, get the job, finish the job, audition, get the job. <laughs> and that was going to be your whole career. Uh-huh. And that, or maybe you'd end up in Stratford for a while and have a long term you know, contract, you'd be doing that sort of thing, but your life was going to be this. Mm. And in no time, did anybody talk about self production. Okay. Wow, York is all about self production. Well, yeah, <laughs> and a lot of theaters, theater 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 schools have had to to start talking about it because it's become such a big part of, of a career. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, there are people who've made that tra- transition into that from my quote unquote generation of theater school people. But then it's become more and more until now. I know York has this devised work, like all about creating mm-hmm. work, sort of and mm-hmm. things like that. Um, the difference, I think, and, and what I think might be, a, so as a, as a performer and a creator, I could come in and I'd be like, I'm going to create a show when I do it. 
a stage manager tends to go from contract to contract to contract and is not involved in yeah. that part of the, the, the production. Yeah, yeah. Do you think that that, 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 that maybe part of, and you can call bullshit on me at any time, <laughs> that maybe part of the, the ebb and flow of your love of the job is because the job requires, you are reliant on somebody else to make the work? That's, um, yes, I had never thought about it that way, but you're probably not wrong. Mm. Um, yeah, because, because that's the thing is that because I don't get, sometimes it's a really, it's a blessing to not have any mm -hmm. creative input into the show. Mm -hmm. <laughs> sometimes it's painful to not mm -hmm. have any creative input into the show. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and, and actually it was a year and a half ago. I did a work. I did a workshop. I never do workshops. I never mm -hmm. get hired to do workshops. And um, I was working with Cahoots Theater, and they were doing a, a show that had two deaf actors in it. We just produced it mm -hmm. this past spring. Oh, the show's called Ultrasound. And uh, and we were workshopping the script, and it was one of the first times that I like just. Didn't, wasn't afraid to open my mouth. I always feel awkward mm -hmm. when I when I make a when I make yeah. a suggestion about something because that's not my place. I should yeah. I should shut up. Um, and I gravitate towards directors who are more permissive of that from their mm -hmm. stage manager. I have a I don't work well with directors who who think that the stage Just manager the should stage be seen and not heard. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because I'm I'm vocal. Um, <laughs> so those directors don't want to work with me anyway. Mm -hmm. um, but this was the first time that like. I, I asked I asked a question that was so insightful that they gave me a sticker. <laughs> and it was the greatest. I was like, this is, I wanted so much to be involved in script development to the point where I was like, should I have been a dramaturg? Like that's mm -hmm. where I sort of had that, I had a little crisis of, oh my God, I should have been a dramaturg. Not that I would have gotten any more work than I do now, but <laughs> just less. probably less, <laughs> probably significantly less. Um, but because uh, I really enjoyed that process, the script mm. development process and being involved in that and those discussions. Mm. I love table work. Most stage managers hate table work, but I love it. Like I love sitting and talking about character and I think because I came at it from the acting side, yeah, you know, there's. I feel like there are two kinds. Of, there's sort of two camps of stage management. There's yes. there's actor stage managers and there's like administrative stage yes. managers. You know, yeah. and I have I my paperwork sucks, but uh, I have all the soft skills. Oh, I like, love I'm I really love, good at. You know, as somebody who's worked with, with various kinds of stage managers, the kind of the actor likes is the actor stage manager. Yeah, of course. Because the actor <laughs> stage manager not just understands the like understands the actor, mm -hmm. but also. Probably a little better at calling bullshit on the actor than the. Than the uh, sure, actor. and usually, like, oh, this is my other my other bias slant towards this is when I when I interview apprentices mm -hmm. every once in a while I get to choose my own apprentice and it's great, um, and I only have one question in the interview and the question is what's the most important quality for a stage manager to have and there is a right answer and it is a sense of humor, <laughs> so if they say organization I'm like oh fuck off, yeah. <laughs> yeah. oh am I allowed to swear in your podcast? Yeah, I've been, I've been, I've been you, I don't even notice when other people the do. Beauty, the beauty of, of a podcast <laughs> is that the CRTC is to say nothing and so Excellent. you can say this shit, whatever you want to <laughs> say, as much as you want to say. It. <laughs> That's good. Um, um, I usually try to give the hint early on by dropping that. I don't even. I don't yeah. even blink when other people swear, and I'm just like, oh, I'm not um, supposed to do it's, that. It's interesting because a workshop has a tendency to be a little bit more freeform mm -hmm. than a rehearsal does. Mm -hmm. I guess a rehearsal requires a little more, a little bit more on the administrative side. Uh, from the stage manager mm -hmm. in a workshop, yeah, but it also requires that everybody in the in the workshop room is encouraging everyone who's in the room to do mm -hmm. this, not just actor and director. Yeah, and really, uh, and it can a workshop can go either way. Uh huh. Yeah. But sometimes, what I think, and I think an actor stage manager is the right kind of stage manager for this kind of thing because they will see things. That the director who's looking at it and the actor who's looking at it don't, because they're actually the audience for the for the for the show. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I suppose. A certain point. Um, and so, very helpful to have that sort of thing in the room. Yeah, and I just and I I really like stories, and I've mm -hmm. read. I've, I've, I'm a voracious reader. I've been mm -hmm. reading my whole life, so I just sort of a well constructed story is very obvious to me. Yes. And plot holes and all of that stuff is very is also very obvious to me. So yeah. It's, it's really easy to notice that stuff and be like, wait a second, that didn't make sense. Yeah. I always... Yeah. You can always do dramaturgy on the side. I could. Because, 
people need that too. I suppose. I, I don't know how to get into that, and I feel like there's some training that I'm missing or something. You know, <laughs> but... the, the thing is, the thing is that um, I think that a lot of times we talk a lot about training, mm. and we act as though you need the training to do the thing. Now, as an actor, I'm thankful for every moment that I had when I was in theater school, mm. even though at the time I was not. Now I am. <laughs> Now I would go back and do it again, mm -hmm. but it'd be cheating because I know what I want to get out of it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I think that there are certain things that you can only learn by doing. Yeah. Because I think you can take writing classes out the wazoo, and you yeah. will not learn a damn thing from the class until you start actually doing the thing. Yeah. And I think that producing is similar. Producing theater is similar, mm -hmm. and dramaturgy may be the same thing. Because if you have insight. Mm -hmm. Working like doing dramaturgy for a fringe show is not yeah. necessarily like it's a good spot to get your feet wet. Fair enough. You know, um, just we're just talking here. We're just yeah. talking. We're just talking. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, the sh what what is the the new Eldritch stuff show? I don't the show is called The Harrowing of Brimstone McCready. The Harrowing of Brimstone McCready. Is there yes. anything you could say about that show? Um, what can I say about that show? It's your typical. Uh, boy goes to the Klondike to become a prospector. Boy meets girl. Boy sells his soul to the devil. Oh, <laughs> devil okay, yeah. yeah, it's an old you know, fashioned that, story. Old thing. Yeah. Old fashion story. Yeah. Um, and it's it's puppet. It's puppets and magic uh, and, and magic and horror. Yeah. yeah. Um, because we haven't started rehearsals yet, I don't have too much inside well, scoop for of you. Of course, but, but I mean, that's opening in October. Uh, October twenty seventh. Yes. Just in time for Halloween. Exactly. Exactly. When you exactly. want. Yes. Exactly when you want magic puppet <laughs> horror theater. It's like we planned it. Yeah. It is like we planned it. It's amazing. <laughs> it's amazing. Um, can we find you online anywhere? Is there? Do you have? Do you have Twitter? Do you have? Uh, Me or Eldridge? Me. You. Oh God. Eldridge, the Elder stuff. I'm going to post. Anyway. I have yeah. a very very minimal internet presence. Mm. I do have a Twitter handle, and I don't even remember what it is because <laughs> it's been that long since I've used it. So I don't know that you can find okay. me. <laughs> my name is Sandy Becker, and if you Google me, I am on the first page of, okay. of Google. Somewhere things. in the first, in the that first. Page yeah, I think I might be. I think I might now be the first thing that comes up. No, any website? No, <laughs> I don't have my own okay. website. Though. All right. I mean, that's it's unusual for a stage manager to have a website. Yeah. Why would uh, I? Of course. Of course <laughs> yeah. But, but yeah. Um, so. Maybe we can get if you we can get the I, I would be happy to post your Twitter handle if you're willing to I can, share that. I can send it to you, but I, I literally haven't tweeted in two years, <laughs> so I right, don't know so that it will be interesting to anyone. Maybe it won't be, but we can look back as an archive of the tweets that you have made. Indeed, it'll be fascinating. Indeed. Well, this has been a lot of fun. Thank you it so much for talking to me today. Well, thank you. I had a great time.